Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lin. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lung Cancer Considered, the official podcast of the ISLC. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode, we're going to return to RET as a therapeutic target. Uh, we know that RET fusions are a known actionable alteration, and this field's blossomed very quickly. So for an up-to-date discussion, I'm joined by two expert thoracic oncologists that really do have expertise in this area. First, from the Lucerne Cantonal Hospital in Lucerne, Switzerland, and adjunct professor at the University of Bern, Dr. Oliver Gauchi. Hello, and thank you for having me, Stephen. Thank you for, for joining us. And from Gustave Roussy in Paris, France, alumnus of the ISLAC Academy, Dr. Mihaila Aldia. Hi, thank you, Stephen, for the invitation. Uh, thank you, Mihaila. I know you guys are both busy, so I appreciate you uh, sort of giving us a bit of your time and, and wisdom. And Let's jump into Tourette as a field. I think that when we're in medical school, we first learn about RET in cancer as RET point mutations. Uh, these are hereditary mutations in the gene RET, and they're often associated with thyroid cancer, multiple endocrine neoplasia. Our focus on this podcast is lung cancer. And in lung cancer, our interest is more on gene fusions or chromosomal rearrangements. Mihaila, how common are these events, and are there any unique characteristics of patients with a RET fusion non-small cell lung cancer? Thank you, Stephen. So the frequency is rare of the RET fusion in non-small cell lung cancer. It's 1% to 2% of cases. The median age of these patients is around 63 years old, and there is no obvious sex predominance. It mainly occurs in patients with never or light smoking history with adenocarcinoma, but it is important to note that patients with smoking history may also present red fusions and also non-adenocarcinoma histologies. So therefore, we should screen any patients with adenocarcinoma irrespective of the smoking history and also try to screen any non-adenocarcinoma histology from a patients with light or non-smoking history. Red fusions are mutually exclusive with other molecular drivers. That means that if a patient was already diagnosed, for example, with a KRAS mutation, there is no need to further look for a red fusion. Also, red has several fusion partners. The most frequent is KIF5B, followed by CCD66, but other rare partners may be observed. And RNA sequencing is the preferred method for screening, but if not available, FISH or PCI may be used for screening, but not immunohistochemistry. Also, these patients usually have cold tumors with low TMB and a low T-cell infiltration. They present disease, especially in the lung, bone, and pleura when their disease is metastatic, and brain metastasis may be present from diagnosis in nearly 20% of cases. An important point is also that these patients may, may have an increased risk of developing thromboembolic events, both venous and arterial, even in the absence of a cardiovascular history. And this is something that we also observed in patients with ALK and ROS1 fusions. Yeah, that's important to keep in mind when we're, you know, patients are at presentation, what symptoms to look out for. But we've come a long way in a pretty short period of time. I think in the early days after the discovery of the RET fusion, we knew pretty quickly that a lot of our multi-kinase inhibitors could be effective treatments. 
Oliver, you've been there from the beginning. You led a global registry uh, to describe retinon small cell lung cancer back in 2017. Can you, for our listeners, maybe comment a little bit on early targeted therapy for retinal lung cancer? Sure. Shortly after the discovery of red fusions of lung cancer by the group from Asia in 2012, our pathology lab set up the fish test and found a red fusion of patient at our institution with lung cancer. So he was a street builder with occupational tar exposure and lung cancer progressing after chemo. We treated him with vendetinib and reported that case in JTO 2013, which then led William Powell to write an editorial. So we then collected more cases together with Jürgen Wolf from Colonia, and we reported the incidence of 1% to 2% and five patients on multi-kinase inhibitors at the European Congress. And previously, I had already published several uh, registries together with Julia Mazier from France about her two ROS1 BRAF-targeted therapies. So we asked Alex Drillon to join us for the Global Red Register, which we called GLORY. And Alex, at the same time, he led a phase two trial with cabotzantinib, and he was involved in the clinical development of new red inhibitors with the pharmaceutical industry. So the GLORY registry included 165 patients with red fusion positive lung cancer, 53 of them received different MKIs, mainly cabotzantinib and vandetanib. Response rates were okay between 18 and 37%, but medium PFS was only two to three months. So uh, that raised interest from the pharmaceutical industry to test their new inhibitors for RET, not only in thyroid cancer, but also in lung cancer. And th those early drugs, Oliver, we had some signal of efficacy, modest PFS, but also a lot of toxicity. Those were tough drugs, right? Yeah, they had some off-target toxicity, including hypertension, um, mucositis, and, and that was a limitation. It really was, because we did have inclusion of those early medicines in the NCCN guidelines, but it, it didn't really look like the targeted therapy that, that we sort of know and love today. But fortunately, treatments become a lot more sophisticated. We now have two selective RET inhibitors that are approved for the treatment of RET fusion non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, the first approved agent was selpercatinib, followed shortly thereafter by pralcetinib. Both of these drugs, very active, both approved as frontline therapy. Uh, let's talk a little bit about them. Mihaila, uh, Gustav Roussy was involved in the development of, of both agents, I guess, but can you summarize a bit on the registrational ARO trial for pralcetinib? Of course. The ARO trial was a phase one, two trial evaluating pralcetinib for patients with advanced solid tumors. Uh, who were harboring red mutations or fusions. The primary endpoint was objective response rate and safety. This trial included 281 patients with lung cancer. Objective responses were high, 59% in pretreated patients and 72 in treatment-naive patients. There were also good intracranial responses. There was a 70% response rate. And median PFS was 16.5 months in pretreated patients and 13 months for treatment naive at the cutoff date. In terms of tolerance, praseltinib was well tolerated, but seven patients did discontinue treatment due to treatment-related side effects. And the most frequent uh, side effects were neutropenia, but it's not the same. Uh, usually we do not see uh, pyrexia with this type of neutropenia. Also hypertension, increased CPK and lymphopenia. There were two drugs, as, as mentioned, prosetinib, very active, very well tolerated, uh, selpercatinib, really the first one approved. Oliver, you were one of the investigators for the registrational libretto 
001 trial of salpercadinib. Can you summarize those data? Yes. Liberator 1 was a large global phase 1 slash 2 dose finding and registrational trial with silpercatinib in patients with previously untreated or pretreated lung and thyroid cancers and other malignancies with activating red alterations. So the phase 1 part started in 2017 and we participated in the phase 2 part starting in 2018. And so the first results from the lung cancer cohort were presented at the World Lung in 2019 by Alex Trillan. And the registration data sets then were published in the two New England Journal of Medicine papers in 2020. And updated results were published this year, showing that uh, at the registered dose uh, of 160 milligram twice daily, so procatinib was well tolerated in the 247 patients with lung cancer and previous chemotherapy, the response rates were 61 and PFS was 25 months. In uh, 69 patients with untreated lung cancer, the response rates was 84% and PFS was 22 months. And so we just had the study close out in 2023 and we were able to refer the survivors back to their local oncologists to continue therapy with commercial drug. And this was a very emotional moment because we had treated many of these patients for more than four years and they were more than happy with their therapy. And so were we. I mean, we've come such a, a long way. And as you mentioned, it's so satisfying here. When we look at these response rates, they're so high. That gives us this confidence that when we see a RET fusion in non-small cell lung cancer, we have drugs that we know are, are going to work much more often than not. And as you mentioned, they're going to work for an extremely long time. There's there's no limit as to how long they can work. A lot of people do encounter resistance, but uh, many can stay on that drug for many, many years. And so uh, I agree. It, it, it's been very rewarding. And now we have two selective RET inhibitors approved for RET fusion positive non-small cell lung cancer, both with very high response rates, both with favorable toxicity profiles. You know, sometimes we know there's a disconnect, though, between what we see in clinical trials and what we see in practice. Uh, Mihaila, what's been your experience with these drugs in clinic? Has it been similar to what we see in the papers and the trials? I find these drugs to be well-tolerated and with manageable side effects. So we commonly observe with both drugs hypertension, also increased liver enzymes that sometimes need uh, dose reductions. Uh, we see digestive effects, but more constipation, for example, with praseltinib, more diarrhea with sulpercatinib. And there is some uh, rare cases even of bowel inflammation and abdominal pain rarely observed. Um, so in terms of drug-specific adverse events, uh, we see more, uh, we see neutropenia, a febrile neutropenia with praseltinib. And sometimes we need to, to reduce doses for, for these side effects. With selpercatinib, we see uh, edema, and I've seen in my practice rarely hypersensitivity reactions for which uh, I had to, to perform a desensitization protocol. Also, in rare cases, um, it has been described, it, and we see kilos effusions, especially with selpercatinib. And uh, when we encounter a patient uh, who has, an, for example, an isolated suspicion of pleural progression of peritoneal uh, progression and increased diffusion, it's crucial to distinguish between a side effect from the drug or uh, a disease progression because obviously the management will not be the same. Also, I am cautious with patients who have received immunotherapy before targeted agents because 
especially I've seen some patients that already had an immune uh, related side effect and under targeted therapy, they reactivate either the same immune effect or another. Yeah, those are, are really important points there. So again, the, the chylus effusion, very interesting. We've seen multiple reports at Congresses, but that's a great point. When we see progression in the form of effusion, let's make sure it's cancer-related, not a side effect. Those chylus effusions, very unusual. And then definitely the, the post-immunotherapy. We're seeing a trend. When we give immunotherapy first and then targeted therapy, there's more toxicity. We see it with EGFR. We see it with ALK. And now here, we see it with RET. And you know, I've had a, a few cases in my own clinic. And I think it just speaks to the fact that we need that NGS report. We want to use targeted therapy first. Uh, and in, in my hands, I agree. I find them very effective, very well tolerated. Oliver, what, what's been your own real-world clinical experience with these drugs? I absolutely agree with Michael and you. And um, we also participated in the early access programs and we treated numerous patients with commercial drugs since their approval here in Switzerland in 2021. And our experience is absolutely in line with the study results. And my colleagues are telling me the same. Key here, try to avoid immunotherapy. It makes what is otherwise a very well-tolerated drug a little bit more toxic. And so if we can, we try to avoid IO beforehand. And, you know, just sort of speaking to the speed of development here, at ESMO 2023 in Madrid, we saw results from a randomized phase three trial, the Libretto 431 study. And this was presented by our colleague from Hong Kong, Dr. Herbert Lung. Oliver, can you summarize what Libretto 431 told us? Yeah, this was a fantastic meeting. And the Libretto 431 is a global phase three, comparing simplicatinib with chemo with or without pembrolizumab. The trial started in 2020 and was uh, not open at my site because we were still busy with Libretto 1. So the results of the first interim efficacy analysis were presented at ESMO and published in the New England Journal of Paper. And the trial recruited 212 patients. The results confirmed the results of Libretto 1 the superiority of sulfurcatinib over chemotherapy. The response rate was 84% versus 65%. The median PFS was 25 months versus 11 months. Tolerability was better with sulfurcatinib. Overall survival is immature. But I don't think personally we can expect a significant difference in overall survival because sulfurcatinib is so active and the crossover rate was 75% in this trial. So that was remarkable. Yeah, pretty impressive efficacy. Um, it had an interesting design, this study, because the control arm was, you know, platinum pemetrexed, sort of chemotherapy alone, or chemoimmunotherapy. And it was really investigator's choice there. I think it was powered. The primary endpoint was really to look at the chemoimmunotherapy, but it really showed that there wasn't a lot of difference between the chemo and the chemo IO in that space. And, um, uh, you know, I think that, that 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 was an interesting point. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. We saw clear efficacy. Mihaila, what about toxicity um, of selpercadinib relative to chemotherapy here? So there were more hypertension, uh, QTC prolongation, and great reliever enzyme elevation in the selpercadinib arm as compared to the standard arm. However, there were no associated liver failure in any of the case, which is reassuring. And uh, certain side effects were more pronounced in patients from East Asia. Hematologic side effects were more common in the chemotherapy arm, as we expected. However, when strictly looking at the tables of side effects, 
one may perceive a high incidence of adverse events with sulpercatinib, even compared to chemotherapy. I think that this perspective might miss a crucial aspect, quality of life. Because in practice, we really see that these patients on targeted therapy generally experience a better quality of life compared to those on chemotherapy, as disease-related symptoms are rapidly alleviated with targeted agents more quickly and more effectively than with chemotherapy. It's a great point. I mean, when you start these drugs, generally people feel better because of rapid responses, at times very deep responses. Uh, when we think of efficacy, Oliver, we know that an important consideration when we're planning our, our perfect drugs, uh, especially in the frontline setting, is CNS efficacy. We want to be able to control cancer that's spread to the brain. We want to be able to protect the brain from, from micro spread there. Do we know anything about these selective red inhibitors and their activity in the brain? Absolutely. We know from the Liberator 1 uh, uh, subgroup uh, published by Vivek Sabai and Clinical Cancer Research in 2021, 20, the intracranial response rate was 82%. And at 12 months, 55% of the responses were ongoing. And a recent update published this year, the intracranial response rate was 85%. And these results support the notion that a smaller and asymptomatic brain meds can be treated with uh, RET inhibitors without the need of upfront surgery or radiotherapy. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely critical. And we've seen some very powerful responses, durable responses in the brain. Um, you know, I think that the development of these drugs has been interesting. They, they've come on very quickly because they're so effective. They've really inserted themselves into our standard of care. But when we think of that trial in particular, the, the Libretto 431 study, this randomized first-line study of salpicatinib versus chemo or chemoimmunotherapy, uh, I guess one question is, was this a study that we needed? Did we learn a lot from this study? And Mihaila, uh, the, one of your colleagues from Gustav Rousseau, Dr. Benjamin Bess, he was discussing for this study, he really questioned whether this study should have even been done. What's your perspective on, on the points he made? Thank you, Stephen, for this question. I absolutely agree with Dr. Bess that conducting randomized phase trials in a setting when we already have excellent results from phase one and two trials that showed so convincing efficacy results uh, as compared to those expected from standard treatments are not necessary. Um, I think that patients with rare alterations should not be treated with the same criteria as those with common alterations, simply because uh, there is a longer time required for, for the inclusion in the trial, and this means that access to drug is delayed. What happened in France is even after FDA and uh, EMA approvals, patients were unable to access uh, these effective drugs of side trials because they were not reimbursed in the absence of randomized trial data. So what's really happening in the field is that first, so the patient must meet specific eligibility criteria to benefit from the drug in the trial. But we see cases where due to poor performance status or altered tests due to the disease, the patient is not able to access the drug in the trial. And this is particularly detrimental for the patient, of course, because these are the same patients that will struggle to tolerate also chemotherapy, and some might never receive any treatment at all. At the second point is that complications may occur during the first-line therapy and during chemotherapy, and some patients do not have the chance to have to switch to a targeted agent. So as Oliver said, in the Libretto 431 trial, there were a high crossover, and many patients receive a RET inhibitor. However, despite this, the remaining small numbers that did not receive it count in lives. So for those patients, I feel that there was a loss of chance. Yeah, sometimes there there is no 
second chance with lung cancer, very unforgiving disease at times. Oliver, do you agree with what Mihala said? Was this a necessary trial given what we already knew about this drug? It's a difficult question, and we all do remember the controversy that started already in, in 2019 when Alice Trillin, uh, he presented the first data at the World Lung. So we already discussed whether, you know, it's, it's, it's needed to conduct such a trial. And we knew already from Liberto One that silpercatinib is, 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 is much better in terms of activity than chemotherapy in the first line. And so therefore, the FDA approved uh, the drug as a line independently. But as a Swiss oncologist, uh, I'm still thankful that the study was conducted because um, it was not approved in Switzerland in the first line. And I hope that now we'll get the registration based on the trial. However, I do agree with uh, Michaela and, and Benjamin Best that our regulatory bodies should find ways to approve highly effective therapies uh, when it's so obvious that neither chemo nor immunotherapy are optimal for these patients, as is the case in red fusion positive lung cancer. Yeah, I think it's more just a matter of, of logically approaching each state and maybe not sticking to dogma so much because these are unique situations. These are powerful drugs. They work well. We want to get them to patients where they can provide a lot of benefit. They're not a cure. And, you know, we do expect resistance. So let's talk a little bit about acquired resistance. Uh, Mihaila, you recently presented some work describing progression on selective retin inhibitors. Can, can you share with the listeners what those data showed? Yes, of course. So we have analyzed resistance and progression patterns after RET inhibitors, pulling data from the real-world data setting from both seprocatinib and praseltinib. And it is reassuring to know that even in the real-world data, brain progression is relatively rare. And um, when we performed the molecular profile at resistance, we have observed a high proportion of patients who developed bypass resistance. In our data, and also from data from the RET registry, bypass resistance is present in up to 45% of cases, which is quite a lot as compared to other molecular drivers. And also, we see less than 15% of patients who develop secondary RET mutations. And I find this important because this means that it will impact subsequent treatment choice, especially when we will have a novel, uh, uh, novel selective inhibitors. And I think that in these cases, we need a molecular selection of patients, as it is expected that patients with bypass alteration would not benefit from uh, novel generation selective drugs. I think this is really important work. Oliver, you've also published some work in this space. What else do we know about acquired resistance to these selective RET inhibitors? Well, we rebiopsied patients progressing in Libretto 1, and uh, Ben Solomon from Australia, he led the analysis, and he discovered the point mutations in on-target resistance in tissue and blood samples from these patients with lung and thyroid cancers, and published in uh, 2020. So larger studies by uh, Michaela and uh, you, Stephen, then showed that the off-target resistance is much more frequent, which actually makes next-generation inhibitor development quite challenging. Yeah, I think we're up to the task, but uh, and there are some exciting drugs coming up, but but you're right. I think resistance is pretty heterogeneous. Um, but is it your opinion, Oliver, that, that we should be doing repeat biopsies per standard of care at the time of resistance? Yes, absolutely. Whenever possible, we do rebiopsy all oncogene-addicted lung cancer, progressioning on targeted therapy at our institution. Molecular information is important for referral of patients to new trials However, as shown by the uh, registry, 
Uh, it is currently very difficult to overcome drug resistance in patients treated with uh, sulpocatinib or falcetinib. By the way, you initiated the red registry and created the name. So congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, uh, it's a fun name, the red registry. I, I think that uh, uh, it lends itself very well to puns, but uh, really great, great collaborations there. Mihaela, what about you? The, the role of tissue biopsy, of liquid biopsy at the time of resistance, is this something that our, our listeners should be thinking of? So uh, in Gustave Rossi, we are able to, to offer patients a comprehensive liquid biopsy panel either at baseline or upon resistance. And I, I, I see liquid biopsy as a very nice tool. It is highly preferred by patients because it's non-invasive and also it has quick turnaround time for results. However, the main disadvantage of this is that it's highly dependent on the tumor burden with, and we have seen frequent false negative results, especially in cases with limited disease progression. In our experience with Foundation One Liquid, we observed that um, the sensitivity for fusion detection at baseline, it's 80%, but it drops to 60% of time of progression. And in patients with informative results, uh, liquid biopsy may explain acquired resistance in more than half of patients, but um, if for, for the others, if resistance profile will change subsequent treatment strategy, I think it's, it's important to proceed to tissue testing when liquid biopsy is negative or fails to identify resistance mechanism. And in the later situation, I recommend that especially because liquid biopsy is less sensitive for copy number alteration detection. So I'm afraid that it might miss some of the bypass alterations such, such as mass amplification as compared to tissue. And when we perform tissue, of course, we still have a significant number of patients without an obvious cause of acquired resistance. And from a research perspective from for the future, I think that these cases, in these cases, we should definitely look beyond ge genomics. Yeah, we definitely need to, to learn more about resistance and the different flavors it comes in. When we think of on-target resistance, Mihaila, are, are there next-generation RET inhibitors already available? Yes, so they are next-generation RET inhibitors, uh, which are undergoing development in phase one clinical trials. They have been all designed to maintain activity against the RET fusions, but also to overcome on-target resistance uh, to treat solver front or gatekeeper mutations. So just to mention a few inhibitors, there is LOXO-260, TPX-0046, EP-0031, and others. But again, I feel that the challenge for these inhibitors in the post-progression setting is the rarity of on-target resistance, post-alpelcatinib, proseltinib, as compared to the frequency of bypass alterations. And we certainly want to deliver them where they're going to be most effective. And, you know, outside of a trial, chemotherapy is, I would consider, our standard treatment uh, for progression after a selective RET inhibitor. Oliver, is there any role for immunotherapy in this RET fusion non-small cell lung cancer subset? Huh, not at our institution. We knew from the other global registry that was called immunotarget, that patients with fusion-positive lung cancers, ALK, RET, ROS1, they do very rarely benefit from monoimmunotherapies. So we have also first evidence from Libretto 431 that the addition of chemotherapy does not make immunotherapy any better, as you said earlier in this podcast. Yeah, I, I would agree there. I think that at least not the currently available immunotherapy agents, maybe something newer, more modern. Uh, Mihaila, let, let's turn our attention to 
to early stage, you know, we've been focused here on advanced metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. As we learned from Adora in the EGFR mutant lung cancer, from Alina in the ALK fusion positive lung cancer, targeted therapy can make a pretty big impact in, in early stage as well. What about RET in early stage lung cancer? So currently there is the Libretto 432 phase two trial, which is a double blind. Uh, it is currently um, tested in patients with stage 1b 3a red positive uh, who will undergo cur uh, curative surgery or radiation uh, followed by adjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, notably, Durvalumab may be administered after chemo radiation in this trial at the discretion of the investigator. Subsequently, uh, patients are randomized to receive either serpicatinib for three years or placebo. And the primary endpoint is investigator-assessed event-free survival in the stage two or three, uh, three, uh, two to three A. Uh, secondary endpoints are event-free survival in the overall population, overall survival, and time to uh, recurrence in the central nervous system. I expect that such trial would bring similar data as we have already observed with Adora and Alina, especially in terms of uh, of uh, reducing the risk of relapse and CNS uh, metastasis. However, I would personally do not use your volume up, for example, in this patient population as because mainly because of uh, a high risk of immune-related side effects with silpercatinib, and also, as Oliver said, because of expected low efficacy. Uh, also, in practice, I feel that patients with uh, early disease tend to accept with a less tolerance the same side effects that we observe in, in patients with stage 4. So, therefore, given that it's a three-year uh, treatment, I feel that for those cases which are... Um, which are very early, for example, uh, in stage 1b, for example, we would need more predictive biomarkers in order to understand who are the patients who will really benefit from such treatments versus those who will be cured by standard treatment alone. Yeah, I agree. I think the use of dervalumab before selpercatinib is a little troublesome there, but there's a lot to unpack, pros and cons with each direction. Oliver, how would you manage a RET fusion positive lung cancer today after definitive therapy, whether it's surgery or chemo radiation? You know, now after the ESMO, uh, the results of Alina, I'm really starting to think about silpercatinib in this setting, especially in stage three. And unfortunately, we do not have open trials for these indications in Switzerland. So I have to discuss it with my patients on a case-by-case -case basis. And we do need individual approval and reimbursement by the private health insurance first. But we're also starting to, uh, to, to set up a new registry, uh, a global registry, to collect and analyze such cases over the next year. So everyone's invited to collaborate on this project and, uh, and happy to receive uh, uh, emails. Yeah, I think we, we definitely need to, to learn more about what we're doing and the, the overall impact there. Um, it's a, a balance of toxicity, cost, and, and efficacy. And I think we, we still have a lot to learn. Uh, you know, on that point, uh, Oliver, you know, the, these collaborative efforts, these registries have really helped progress for these rare subtypes of lung cancer. And I think that really from, from both of you, the amazing global collaboration that we've seen uh, has been really, I think, pretty inspiring. Oliver, can you comment on, on your experience, you know, not, not just with this disease set, but sort of on, on establishing these registries, on bringing the communities together and sort of using our collective experience to answer scientific questions? How have these efforts been received sort of globally? 
Yeah, my experience with real-world data and oncogene-addicted lung cancer is very positive. So we started with case reports, and now we're much better in terms of numbers and data quality. We generated preliminary evidence for targeted therapies and rare entities and raised awareness for testing and many uh, early drug trials, and we showed that immunotherapy has limitations. And uh, and uh, some register even helped, uh, you know, industry to gain FDA approval. So nevertheless, we, we never relied on money and always worked in the interest of science and based on trust. And, and I made good friendship with many leading clinicians, scientists around the globe, including yourself and Mihaela, <laughs> which is a great privilege for me. Yeah, it's been such a, a great experience. Mihaela, you've been involved in some as well. How easy or how difficult has it been to establish these collaborative efforts and you know, to listeners, do you have any tips for colleagues that, that are looking to mirror these kinds of efforts? So initially for our RedMap registry, we started to include our main collaborators, those uh, with which we already knew and worked with. And as we began presenting our preliminary results at Congresses, we started to, to propose this project to anyone who was interested in, regardless of the numbers of the patients that they had. And I found to, to have a lot of enthusiasm from the scientific community and from my colleagues. And it was really, really uh, nice to establish this collaboration, to connect with colleagues from all over the world in order to, to, to provide answers that would otherwise not be possible from one single center institution. And my tips for my colleagues would be maybe start collaboration with friends and then make new friends by extending the collaboration effort to anyone who is interested. And I think that maybe including patient groups in such efforts could also be extremely beneficial. And we also plan to do that for the RedMap uh, registry. Yeah, there's there's a lot we could cover, but we do we do have to close. We're running up on time. So I just want to take a, a moment to, to thank both of you, not just for being on this podcast, but really for the work that both of you are doing in, in these rare subtypes. I think it's really important work and I just want to uh, you know, send some appreciation for your efforts there. So Mihaila, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Stephen. And Oliver, thanks for, for being our guest today. Thank you too. And thanks everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. You can listen to other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website, iaslc.org under Newsroom. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 